All right, good morning, Parkview. Good morning. You're all singing so loudly. That was fun. Thank you, band. Wow, really led us well. Uh, my name's Thomas. I'm one of your pastors here at Parkview, and uh, it's my joy to lead us through Acts 15. Uh, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, Acts 15, verses 1 through 35 will be our focus. Last week, the scene closed with the Gentile church, the non-Jewish church in Antioch, receiving their missionary pastors, Paul and Barnabas, back from their first journey out into uh, the world, out into Cyprus and Iconium, Lystra and Derby, and so forth. And on their return, they were sharing with the church in Antioch how God had worked miraculously through them, through both Jews, people who were ethnically part of God's people, Israel, and Gentiles, people who are not ethnically part of God's people people to work toward making disciples, disciples of Jesus Christ, which is what we're all about here as well. That passage ended there in verse uh, 27 and 28. In chapter 14, it says, they arrived and gathered the church together. That is there in Antioch. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And there remained no little time with the disciples. Disciples are being made. New believers, people trusting Christ, finding new life through the power of God's spirit, unity between different people from different nationalities and races and, and, and rich and poor and educated and uneducated times are good in the church of Jesus in Antioch until chapter 15, there's a problem. Uh, Acts 15 tells us about that problem that emerges. It tells us about the debate that ensues as they go up to Jerusalem to solve this, this dispute between these two churches or these two sets of teachers, the solution that God gives, and then the response, the joyful, encouraging response that it produces. Let's start in verses 1 through 5. But some men came fr- down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we thank you for Acts 15. We thank you that we can come together another day to come together to worship Christ. We pray that you would form us deeply through this worship today. We pray especially now that as we open your word, you would open our eyes to see all of the wonderful things you have done for sinners like us through your son Jesus. Grant us, please, we pray, we ask, we beg, clarity, attention, focus, um, Lord, in a passage that's, uh, that's thick with some good theological details, um, help us to, to keep our attention. And most of all, Lord, help me to say true words about Christ and show us, show us Christ. Amen. Amen. So, there's a problem. 
There is a problem in uh, Antioch. There's a problem that then goes up to Jerusalem and the problem becomes bare. So, some unnamed men arrive from Antioch to Antioch from Judea, that is the region of Jerusalem, and they must be claiming some kind of authority, some kind of teaching authority, probably because they have come from Jerusalem where this whole movement began in the beginning of the book of Acts. And the content of their teaching is this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And this causes significant conflict uh, between those Judean teachers and Paul and Barnabas. And you can imagine why. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have just returned from this massively successful mission to both Jews and, and non-Jews, that is Gentiles. Uh, they've proclaimed to them faith in Christ, in the finished work of Christ on their behalf, through nothing that they have done. They've seen them converted. And now these people have come from Judea and said, actually, you're going to need to make another journey back out to those same places, uh, a rather painful journey, um, to tell them that what you have told them is actually wrong, that there is something additional needed. We see in verse 5 that when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem to clarify that teaching, the source of it is revealed. It says in verse 5, some, and note this, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up, and then it clarifies exactly what they're talking about. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these, keep in mind, former Pharisees, I know we read that word and we, we have a theological box for them, they're hypocrites, right? And, and so often in the Gospels when Jesus is interacting with these, they're often Jesus' opponents um, who are focused on the outer, just uh, things of religion without having any heart for God. In verse five we see these are believers. They have, they have changed their minds about Jesus. There are some from the Pharisees, praise God, uh, especially after this long series we had through the, um, uh, through the parables this summer. So often Jesus was telling them how to find the kingdom of God, often painfully. Well, some of them have become Christians. Um, and yet what they say is that we're not just talking about circumcision for these Gentile believers. It's, circumcision was sort of the entry gate in the Old Testament into obedience to all of the law of the Old Testament. Um, that these Gentiles would not only need to do step one for the men to be circumcised, but to obey the entirety of the law, keep the law of Moses. Not just the Ten Commandments, but if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, often we think of the dietary laws, what we can eat, cannot eat, the cloven hooves, the lobster versus bacon, those kinds of things, the requirements of the temple and its sacrifices, the feasts and its festivals. Uh, for them, well, for us, to get onto I-80, go up north on Dubuque Street. First, you gotta get on the on-ramp to get onto I-80. For them, to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew. Judaism and all of its cultural forms and the submission to the Old Testament law comes before, is, is former to, to be saved by God, you must first, before salvation comes, you must first submit to God's law. Adherence comes before adoption as sons. Behavior, right behavior, comes before assurance of belonging. Why, why is this such a big deal? Why did this become sort of the most significant central debate of the, really, of the entire New Testament? Why? Clear way, everything else, all of the questions of sort of nationality and circumcision, ancient commands and all of that, here's the question. Does salvation, does God's salvation essentially work outside in or 
inside out. These former Pharisees, they weren't say, saying that salvation was not possible for these, for these uh, Gentiles. They were saying that obedience was the prerequisite to that salvation. That is, things work outside in. I am a good person because I've done good things outside in. And so the church's decision was that now that Christ had come, he had fulfilled all of, the, all of the requirements of the law demanded in the Old Testament. He had paid also the penalty for those of us who have not kept his commands, that is all of us, and he has given us his life-giving spirit to cleanse us from the inside out. The resounding answer, spoiler alert, is that salvation works from the inside out. That is the Christian way. That is the story of Jesus. And so... This is what happened in the early church. They were making this decisive, absolutely decisive transition between one way, one manner of approaching God and the new way that God had opened up through Christ. So what, what keeps for us today, for us today, what keeps these 35 verses from basically being the ancient version of C-SPAN? You know, I know it's there. Great that they made the problem emerge. They made a decision. They communicated it. Never going to turn it on, but I'm glad it's there. No. What keeps that from happening? Because the problem that the disciples were encountering 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem is the exact same problem, the exact same question that is going on in every one of our hearts on a day-by-day, moment-by-moment basis. Because within every one of us, every one of us, there is a little Pharisee. A little Pharisee still prodding us, still whispering, still murmuring. Christ's love can't possibly be that free. Look at the week you've had. Surely, he's waiting to see some change before he really blesses you until you finally get it together. Then you can be sure. Every one of us deals with this. Every one of us. If you don't, it, it might be that you haven't learned to separate your own voice from the voice of that little accuser that is there with us. Until we are with Christ in glory in heaven, that voice then will finally be extinguished, finally be silenced. But until then, it is a fair question to ask your fellow believers, to ask yourself, what is that little Pharisee trying to trick me with these days? He's always got a line of approach, and so I'll ask you the same thing. What is being held out to you? What is on offer if only you would add your obedience to Christ's finished work? Perhaps you're here and you would say, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a Christian. Don't you sense the inner striving, the constant self-recrimination and condemnation is it possible that those things are, are actually pointing you not to harder work in order to earn a better life, but to the fact that God has already provided something, if only you could rest? Christian, what would it take for you to be convinced that Christ is not almost enough for you, but that he is, in fact, all that you need? If I could give you a little spoiler for my final point here today, it would be that one of the things we see in response to this is very much a theological truth. I know you might feel like we're at school right now. I know that's, that's kind of how our passage is today. But one of the truths is that joy and celebration in the Christian life, a constant sense, inevitable, sufficient joy is available to us friends today when we realize that Christ has given us all we need. 
all we need. And that kind of, th it's possible today for us. So as we see here, here's the problem. Is salvation, or the question you might say, is salvation fundamentally through Christ outside in, as this group of Christian Pharisees demand, or is it inside out, as Paul and Barnabas have been teaching uh, throughout the book of Acts on their missionary journeys? Let's see how they resolve that debate there in verse 6, verse, starting in verse 6. Uh, this, this is clearly sort of, by the way, kind of a, a digest of the debate. Luke gives us the highlights. He sort of, we, I'll just read it for you. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had been, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. You see there in verse 7, uh, Peter begins by retelling the story of Acts 10. Uh, that's when God intervenes supernaturally to send Peter uh, to a Gentile named Cornelius. You might remember this story. Uh, this sheet is uh, lowered before Peter and these different kinds of foods that would have been unavailable to him, unlawful for him to eat as a faithful Jew, uh, according to the law of Moses. Uh, it was lowered. Peter responded in this vision, I will not eat this, Lord. I would never eat this. I am a faithful Jew. I would not eat this. And God's response time and time again was, do not call common what I have made clean. Um, uh, and so, Peter shared Christ with them, shared Christ with these Gentiles, and there was a visible, a clearly seeable manifestation of God's Spirit coming down on these people who, by the way, had never obeyed the law of Moses, had not been circumcised, had not uh, followed what God had said in the law of Moses, and it was clear. God has, has accepted them. That's what Peter is referring to. Peter responded uh, there in Acts 10 and said, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Spirit just as we have? You can see how in the early church it was significant uh, that the Spirit arrived through visible manifestations, seeable phenomenon, so that there would be no question at that time who God was with. Uh, Peter reminds the assembly then of that experience. He says, you remember from the early days how God made a choice that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Note again, as I read through it again, every single verb that Peter speaks, its subject is God. Do you notice that? Uh, in verse 7 it says, God made the choice. God made the choice. It doesn't say, I decided to go to uh, Joppa to talk to Cornelius. It says, God made the choice that by Peter's mouth, that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear and believe. In verse 8, God, who knows the heart. Verse 8 again, God, if you skip that knows the heart, it's, it's God that bore witness to them. In verse 8 again, God gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles, just as he did to the Jews who had believed in Jesus. Verse 9, it's God who makes no distinction. Uh, verse 9 again, it's God who cleanses their hearts by faith. God is the subject of every... And so in Peter's mind, what has happened up to this point in Acts is God's initiative. And the apostles and the disciples have simply been doing what they have seen God doing himself. 
And so, Peter, this debate is, is fundamentally silly. Are we here to debate whether God can do what God just did? He did it. We saw it. You saw it. What are we, de- what are we debating here? This is about what God has done. And that's why in verse 10, uh, Peter's ultimate retort is this. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Mic drop, uh, conversation ender. His point is that the Pharisees have been taking something that God does and trying to write their names at the top of the sheet of paper. No, no, no. Salvation is it's something that God has already done. You notice also in verse 10 what Peter, Peter is clearly implying about the law of Moses. It's, it's not that it is bad in itself, but within the, when this law is laid on us, on us as a yoke, we, we're familiar with that sort of metaphor as a yoke for an animal. It's one that Jesus used as well. Um, when it's laid on us as a burden to accomplish on our own from the outside in, God's commands can only crush us. They will only ever crush us. But then two times Peter mentions the heart, verses 8 and 9. It says, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, gave them the spirit as he did to us. And in verse 9, he made no distinction between us and them. How? Why? Verse 9, because he had cleansed their hearts by faith. The heart. The heart, as the Bible uses that word, is the innermost part of you. Take everything else away, your personality, your upbringing, your family, whatever it is, your heart is the fundamentally permanent thing of you. The, the thing that, take everything else away and it's still there. It's still, it's the inner motivating core of who a person is. It's what makes you fundamentally you. Peter's point is simple. What is most deeply wrong with me and you today could never be changed by changing our behavior or our diet or our bodies. And this is fundamentally both good news and bad news. And this is why, this is why Acts 15 is, is not ancient C-SPAN. Turn the channel, great, interesting, write it down, I'll look at it later. Because the problem of our heart, the, the heart of our problems is the problem of our hearts. What is most wrong with us, like we said, is our hearts. There's bad news and there's good news. The bad news is that all of our outside-in strategizing and self-helping and white-knuckling and give me one more week to get it right, Lord, please, is never going to amount to anything. You cannot clean a dirty heart with dirty hands. We need help. But there's good news. If we will trust the great physician, the great surgeon, Jesus, he will and this is repeated time and time again in the Old Testament, pointing us forward to this very moment for us, he will give us a heart transplant. He will take our filthy hearts and give us a clean one, a new one. But heart surgery is scary. It will scare us every day. (laughs) It will make us nervous, especially at first. Maybe you're here considering that kind of move, to really give ourselves to the Lord in that way, to say, I'm deeply flawed, will you receive me? You will wonder, we will wonder, because of that voice in the back of our heads, the little Pharisee pestering us and prodding us, can we really trust him? Can we really let him touch us that deeply? What might he ask of us? 
That's what Peter's argument is all about. Outside in will never work. It might make us feel better. It might make us feel more substantial. It might make us feel like we've finally done something for him. But inside out always will if we're brave enough to be still in his hands. And Peter's argument against this outside-in approach is that here's what we can do with this today and tomorrow. Here's why we need Acts 15, and particularly Peter's argument. Peter's argument 2,000 years ago against the Pharisees who were saying, no, you need Jesus plus more, are the exact same words and the exact same patterns that you can use to counteract those exact things going on in your heart or from those around you who are saying the same thing. These are the retorts that we need to make to our own hearts, to preach to ourselves, to remind ourselves that Christ has done it. Christ has finished it. Christ is all we need. When you find yourself, dear brother or sister, feeling like you sort of dread prayer, prayer feels a bit empty. Perhaps you even start to think, why would God listen to me? He... Why would, why would he? Peter responds, and you can too. You'll never pray enough to earn God's love. You'll never do enough to earn his ear in prayer. But Jesus has. And on the cross, he said, it's finished. He answers your prayers because when he looks at you, he sees Christ's perfection and not the last week that you had. When you find yourself looking down at others who are not following God like you are, and even if you recognize this is not right, I should not be doing that, Peter would have us say, have us be reminded that comparison and all of its its fruits have nothing to do with the inside-out way of Jesus. God has given us a clean heart. God knows the hearts of others. Salvation, praise God, is from the inside out. So I'm going to focus on what I can do and what Christ has done not on others. When you face correction or criticism or even contempt from others and you're tempted to respond with that natural self-defensiveness and thorniness, don't get out of my space, okay? Stop it. Peter counsels us, counsels them, and would counsel us to do this. Did you know criticism, remember self, criticism can only wound us if we are our own saviors. Criticism can only wound us if our salvation is reliant on our own performance. So in this moment, what do I have to lose? All they can do to me is help me grow. And on and on and on we can go. And I hope as you meet in community groups throughout this week, you begin to think out and unwrap all of the implications of Acts 15 and its message that we can rest in God's salvation through the grace of Christ alone. Make Peter's words, make Peter's retorts into yours, in your own hearts, as you help others learn Christ, as you confront the problem that we see here, this ancient problem that is still modern today, to wonder, could God actually be for me by sheer grace? And we've seen this problem, we've seen the debate, it's become clear salvation must be from the inside out not the outside-in grueling process that these, these born-again Pharisees would have us expect. The church leaders have come, accord, come to one accord on that point. Um, uh, I know we have a long passage here, so you see I'm going to skip around a little bit now. Um, I encourage you in your community groups, continue looking, continue studying. Um, but then we see finally the solution that these leaders come to and communicate, verses 22 through 29. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church 
to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch. So from Jerusalem back down to the church they came from. Um, They sent Judas and Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. And let me just pause there. You'll notice uh, they send both Jews and Gentiles. They send people from Jerusalem, and they want it to be clear. This is a united decision. Um, This is two churches reconciling well. There's much that can be learned there. But now let's let's read the letter uh, that they send. It says this. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, though we gave them no instructions, let me pause there. This is the nice, kind, gentle, ancient way of saying they're not with us. (laughs) Ignore. (laughs) Return to sender, please. Um, This is their nice way of saying, we're going to get to some more stuff later, but the first thing you need to hear is those teachers who have come down from Judea, they are not saying what we are saying. Ignore their teaching. Let's continue. It has seemed good to us, verse 25, right there, it seemed good to us, having come to one accord, we're all on the same page here, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them uh, to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll stop there. Could there be a more resounding endorsement of Paul and Barnabas' ministry than that sentence right there? That what they have done amongst the Gentiles is not only worthy of honor, but is theologically correct? Verse 28. Verse 28 is really sort of the heart of, of, of what happens here. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. (laughs) Farewell. The crucial point I want to draw your attention here to is this. Note especially, of course, first the sort of unqualified rejection of the teaching of those who had come from Judea and said that they must be circumcised, must keep the law of Moses as a condition for salvation. But you might ask, and they might have asked the exact same thing, if I'm saved by sheer grace, does that mean I can live however I want? Does an inside-out salvation that God has given me a new heart which will begin to change and must begin to change the way that I am living my life, does that mean that I can accept a clean heart without ever letting the grace of God then flow into life change, emotional change, change in my behavior? Does, Does belonging before believing mean acceptance without change? In response, we have verses 28 and 29. And these, there are many many reasons that people have proposed uh, that the church gave these initial sort of, you see those four, I'm talking about these particular uh, requirements, it says. In verse 29, so we, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, what has been strangled, from sexual immorality. I can't spend, I'm running out of time already, so I can't spend a lot of time unpacking why they would give these specific provisions to Gentiles in particular. One thing that's clear is that what they're not saying, and you can tell simply by the order of their letter, that what they're not saying is that this is the new, updated Gentile version of the Law of Moses. 
That's not what they're saying. As in, follow these laws in order to be accepted. You can tell because they put it very last, and they, tell, they say it while already addressing them as brothers, accepting Paul and Barnabas' ministry, and so forth. So that's not what it is. What it is, is this. The call to behave a certain way, which, which comes to all of us who trust Christ, not as a burden of the law to be done as a way to accomplish salvation, but as a response to what Christ has done, comes after the assurance of God's favor and love. Belonging precedes believing, sorry, behaving. Our obedience flows out of God's acceptance, not in order to turn around and earn God's acceptance. I think of uh, the day, July 4th, 2018, was the day uh, my little boy, Jack, was born. He might be watching right now. Hey, Jack. Um, we got one homesick right now, so they're home. But, uh, and I just remember, I, I have this picture, and Jack and I look at it, and he's sort of aware enough, he's four years old now, to, to know what it is. It's the picture of me holding that little baby boy the first time. I became a dad. I had a very fraught sort of fatherhood situation growing up. And so th that moment was just such a moment of incredible tender sweetness for me. Holding my little boy, Jack, we didn't know the gender. It was, so, it was just so special, such a special moment. Many of you experienced it or something like it. Um, and we knew, we had picked out a name ahead of time. We said, we're gonna call him Jack. This is after my grandfather on my mom's side. He's passed away since then. Um, kind of the only stable father figure that I had in my life. And, and we said, we're gonna name him Jack, Jack Hoke. And I remember he was born, I said, it's a boy. They'd say, come on, what is it? Because I was supposed to say it, I forgot my part. Anyway, they, it's a boy, I said, it's Jack. Katie, it's Jack, it's Jack. And we're just weeping, I'm sitting there. Um, and what I didn't do is I didn't say, let's wait until he's seven or eight to make sure he deserves the Hoke name. Let's give it a few weeks to see how it goes. This is our son who had done nothing, nothing to earn our affection for him. Nothing to earn the family name. And from that moment, we could not be more for him. Our love for him could not be more serious. It was a non-negotiable now, the Christian life, now, I am a, I'm a broken man. I'm a broken father. God is a perfect father who looks out at all of his children with a love that transcends and surpasses anything like that. Probably the most vivid example being that we are not sort of perfect newborn babies who have never done anything wrong yet in our lives. Uh, we have rebelled against God. We have, we have turned our backs on him. We've spit in his face, and he comes and gives us the family name. He adopts us. The Christian life from beginning to end is a matter of God treating us as Jesus deserves, not as we deserve. So that moment by moment, even as God calls us forward into radical, painful, difficult obedience, as must always be, we can know that it is not a matter of earning our salvation to prove to God that he has made the right choice but to take hold of that which is already ours. Now, there are times <laughs> when we say to Jack, that's not how a hoke behaves. <laughs> that's not who you are. 
Okay, that's not how we do it in this family. And the point is this. We tell him that because he is, because he does belong, then we turn to him and say, this is the right way to behave. You're in our love, you're in our family, and that's how we behave here. Um, it is not the other way around. The order matters. Jesus has done what the law could never do, what none of us, not even the most perfect, most wonderful law, we're so thankful for the Old Testament, but we can never ask it to do what God never designed it to do. We are not in this room because we are nice or moral or clever. God chose that we would hear and believe, just as he says, just as Peter said 2,000 years ago. God chose uh, to cleanse our hearts. Do you know what this means? To cleanse our hearts our hearts is the part that, that God is most concerned with, the, the part that needs the most help, the part that is most unreachable. It's the, the bottom of that vase that we can't quite reach our hand down into without destroying it. God's Spirit has come in, the place where our behavior, where our beliefs, where our, our truest self, God has given you, and some of you, this, you absolutely need to hear this this morning, God has given you a new self. Nothing less radical has been needed. Peel away everything else about you, your personality, your family history, your habits, your inherited dispositions. Some of you feel like, I'm never going to really grow as a Christian because of how my dad treated me or because of this thing that happened to me 80 years ago. I don't know what it is. God has given you a new self, and he wants to bear that burden with you. And think of it. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. God has given you utter newness. You are no longer controlled by those things. Some of you feel, maybe I'm just t talking to myself here, <laughs> have the sense that I'm, I'm fundamentally messed up and that's always going to be there. And maybe Jesus can help me a little bit. Wrong. God has given you an entire new self. What is, what is deepest in you, what is deepest in you if you belong to Jesus is him. What is most permanent about you, what is most irretrievably and unchangeably true about you is that God is pleased and he has chosen to dwell in you. When God looks at you, truly looks at you, he sees real beauty, real courage, because he put it there. And he's not exaggerating. How has this happened? Verse 11 says it. We believe we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the final answer to the inner Pharisee in every single one of us. We believe, we can say this, we can memorize this, we can repeat this over and over and over. It will never become a tired spiritual maxim, whatever. We will be saved. I will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Add nothing. Full stop. Christian friend, this is the imperishable banner over your life today. And if it's not, if you're not, if you're hearing this is not true over, it can, that can change before you leave this room. You can get a new self. You can get yourself back. In 1864, James Proctor, hymn writer, he wrote, he wrote the song, It Is Finished. He said this, this famous line, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. That is our task today. 
Would we come to him? Would we lay our doing down, the end of our, our interminable self-justification and self-interested goodness? Stop looking. It's there. It's his. Take hold of it today. The one who is good enough has written your name on his report card and yours on his so that you get the crown because he took the cross. And we see the re result that that letter brought in verse 31. When the Gentiles had read this letter, or when the, they heard this letter read, they rejoiced. They rejoiced because of its encouragement. Here have a few thoughts to close with, a few thoughts to ponder as we worship and, and pray here. As we take communion here in a few moments, I'll just warn you for whoever's going to be getting those things. I'll leave you with this. I want you to just encourage you to choose. It's going to be a choice, and it will take effort to choose to believe that the grace of Christ is sufficient for you. Whether today that is for the first time or the 500th time that you are reminding yourself. Today, if you are lacking joy, I encourage you to bring your heart to the Lord again, perhaps especially as we move into a time of communion. Ask him to restore your joy. If you're beginning to feel like the Christian life is fundamentally one of drudgery and effort and not one of refixing your gaze on Christ and asking him for fresh forgiveness and power to obey, bring your heart to him again. There's nothing he wants more. Finally, use this. Use the arguments of Peter and, and spend more time in this if you need uh, to really explore what it would look like for you to help others remind them as you make disciples of what Christ has done, whether they're believers or not yet, the freedom that comes in knowing that we are saved by the grace of Christ alone.